The book was supposed to be launched next month, but I will explain to you if you want to know why it has been delayed for six months. But meanwhile, rushing through some of the things, I wanted to put up the picture of Malinowski pitching his tent because I did a conversion course in anthropology at Cambridge after doing PPE. And the only course for us five people who worked who weren't doing undergraduate degree was a two-hour weekly course from October to July taught by Edmund Leach, who himself had been taught by Malinowski. And the entire course was on Malinowski. <laughs> but people laugh. But I am extremely pleased that this is what I learned. Because there was no teaching of fieldwork methods, absolutely nothing. And by chance, I landed a research job on gypsies and government policy uh, after I gained the qualification at Cambridge. And I was employed by a seconded civil servant who knew nothing about anthropology. She had employed me out of 200 people because I sounded exotic. Um, and also because I had a very, very mediocre reference from my sociology teacher who ended up by saying I was a charming young lady. And the um, civil servant was reassured because I wasn't a boffin. You know, the British intelligence, well, the British civil servants are terrified of boffins. So I had a very, very mediocre reference, and that reassured her. <laughs> um, but, and also, I had gone to the Oxford Library to look at the first census that she had conducted on gypsies in the late 60s. And apparently I was the only one in the interview who, who had actually acquainted herself with a census. But I had months and months of trying to prove to her the value of fieldwork. She <coughs> wanted me to go round gypsies all round England and Wales with a 20-page questionnaire. And this is a non-literate people. And even in her census questionnaire, she asked these nomads, why do you travel? Do you ask nomads, why do you travel? They would ask me, what's it like living in a house, Judith? How could I answer that? Well, it's got a ceiling, it's got lights, you know. So um, that started my puzzle. But I knew, thank goodness, that you did pitch your tent in the village. And also, thanks to that wonderful course, I learned holistic anthropology. I learned you looked at economics, you learned to, looked at politics, ritual, kinship, gender, sexuality, magic, and in fact part of the larger society. So I went with a holistic perspective into the field. I didn't prejudge. So that has led my curiosity all the way through. And in the opening to my book, I say, when anthropology applicants are asked to outline their research proposals and methods, would they dare reveal the following, that they will learn to shin up tree trunks, as Brian Morris kept attempting in tropical forest India, or pound manioc hour by hour, like Christine Hugh-Jones, ride horses on migration in Afghanistan, as Nancy Lindisfarne, 
take peyote on a sacred journey as Meyerhoff, hunt monkeys for dinner with poison darts like Stephen Hugh Jones, dance as did Eleanor Smith Bowen, walk Greek mountain paths barefoot on a pilgrimage, then write on the smell of incense like Margaret Canard, one of my interviewees. Should the monitoring committee know that anthropologists also make friends rather than interrogate informants? Will research proposals suggest the anthropologists will clean lavatories in a hospice, as my student Jenny Hocking, weep with the bereaved, play children's games the day long, as Charlotte Hardman, my contemporary, or drink the water of the Ganges, as Johnny Parry did, when it contains the remnants of a burning gout? I was not to know I would have to drive a 1,500-weight van for scrap collection, hand-milk cows, and join 12-hour Normandy banquets when I did work in Normandy. I was to appear as character witness at the Old Bailey Criminal Court for a traveller charged with kidnap, possessing a firearm, and attempted murder. It was very useful appearing in my subfast gear in the old Bailey and saying, yes, I studied at Oxford, and he was found not guilty. Um, so, rewarded as intellectuals, anthropologists used their bodies. Long out of the armchair, they'd moved down from the veranda. They're at the mercy of their host's acceptance, then set on unpredictable paths. They can hardly mimic bureaucratic research designs and pursue a preordained project, increasingly set by a top-down managerial culture. Grounded theory may have recognized the back and forth of knowledge through process, but not grounded in the whole being and the researcher's body. So I was lucky in that on my first sort of day visits to gypsy camps, I met um, an Irish warden who said that he wanted to go away on holiday. And I said, well, can I take your place? So I moved on as a sort of replacement warden on his camp while he went away for two weeks. And I was extremely lucky in that the, um, the local council official thought that I was from the ministry. In fact, I was working for the Centre for Environmental Studies. And a brilliant man, he said, you can have a caravan. You don't need to collect rent. You can live there. Of course, you know, I had to invent and make up various stories. But that was one of them. And you can see the sort of dual carriageway thing there. And then another place. That, that's, that's where my caravan was resting. Um, I did fieldwork at the time when fieldwork in Europe was, or let alone in the UK, was not taken seriously. You're not a real anthropologist. I, I said I got dysentery and head lice, so it did help. Um, but um, I also had to learn the language. I have got this terrible upper-middle-class accent that I acquired at a terrible boarding school. I've since written about that boarding school, and it's on the reading list at Harvard Psychology course. <laughs> so exotic, this culture that I was brought up in. Um, and I had to lose my Lincolnshire accent. But when I first moved on, um, this lovely woman, she um, said to me, Oh, Judith, I do like the way you talk. You must have had special education lessons to talk like that. I like to talk like you. 
and I thought there's some insincerity there. I'm not sure. Um, anyway, as time went by, I learnt like the My Fair Lady in reverse. The rhyming spine falls mining in the climb. And I had to talk like that and talk like motors instead of lorries and all that. And chavies, by the way, the word chav's been appropriated now. And she came back from travelling about a month ago after that, and she said, Judith, your speech has improved. <laughs> so that just shows how um, hypocritical people are. Um, I have written recently um, about my first few work with my um, boyfriend, Hugh Brodie. He wrote about the West of Ireland, and I've just written up and published a journal article about that. I also wrote an article years ago, Fieldwork Up the M1. So I was, it was because I had to justify with my employer how one did fieldwork that this sort of thing got me interested. And that is a major theme throughout this whole book, which is that the anthropologists are drawn by puzzles, by curiosity. And this is the thing I've been listening to these wonderful interviews <coughs> with scientists by the Iraqi Al-Khalili, Jim Al-Khalili. And he confirms that scientists are also drawn by curiosity, not by some bureaucratic top-down thing. And this is what I find in the choice of topics through my interviews. And, and I was asked to write a book on fieldwork methods way back in the early 90s and I transcribed all my lectures and I thought well I would look at footnotes and prefaces for the anthropologist's actual practice. I didn't find the answers and um, they've forgotten they gave me in advance, they were bought up by somebody else, I've since had another publisher but now I have been taken over by those brilliant anthropologists and I've put up, you've got some on the handout, but here are, here are the names of the different people, um, their institutions, and their particular area. They've gone on to do other, you know, you have to rush through it, but they've gone on to do lots of other interesting things. But these, I mentioned the things that our dialogues concentrated on. And ironically, what started it off, and I blame Brian Morris, who came to give a lecture here, a seminar, was it one or two years ago? I was visiting him, and he started talking about his fieldwork. And these were amazing narratives. And I said, do you have a tape recorder? He said, yes. As he was getting it together, I scribbled down questions on the back of an envelope but these are questions that have puzzled me for years. And four hours later, we turned off the tape recorder. And I've repeated those questions with anthropologists ever since. And I said to Brian, look, it's your fault. This is why this book's taken so long. Um, here's uh, others, and we recognize the second name down there. <laughs> Carol Silverman. And, you know, they are of 16 different nationalities, a fascinating um, array. So, um, I was, uh, do I get back to the book or not? But, but what, I, what I found 
battling away with fieldwork methods books. There weren't any in anthropology, as I said before. And when um, compulsory methods courses were introduced, this was after Mrs. Thatcher tried to abolish the then Social Science Research Council. She recruited Lord Rothschild and hoped that he would rubbish it because she said they were all communists and all social scientists are communists, I don't know. Anyway, in the end, Lord Rothschild was brilliant. He said it would be an act of extreme vandalism if you um, destroyed that. But she insisted that it should not have the word science in. So it was called the Economic and Social Research Council. But um, social scientists were very much uh, nervous, and they had to prove that they were doing something like transferable skills. And they then had compulsory methods courses. And by then, I was professor at Edinburgh University. But there were no books to teach my students with. And they went off to sociology departments, and I also was in the Essex Department of Sociology, so I learned also sociologists' view of anthropology, which is unfortunate. Uh, my mother was a lecturer in sociology, so, you know. Um, but they would teach students that anthropology is um, valid but not reliable, because you can't generalize from it. And there is an absolutely brilliant article by Leach that I just depend on, which is called An Anthropologist's Reflections on the Social Survey, which I can give you the reference for. But my students would come back really demoralized. They were brilliant students, and they were told that anthropology just makes it up as they go along, and they don't have hypotheses. And so I then began to try and find something, and I depended on lectures of my own, and also my own grounded experience. But there, there wasn't anything. The, the only thing that really was my Bible was Michael Agar, The Professional Stranger. It's a rambling book. But it is superb, because he did field work outside the States, first of all. And then when he came back to do some work, I think in um, medical spheres, he would mix with other social scientists, and they keep saying, what hypothesis are you testing? What's your tool? What's your implement? And he said he felt very inadequate. He felt that he wasn't a proper scientist, because he didn't have a tool, or he didn't have a, a method, or something like that. And in the end, he came up with this brilliant idea, which is the funnel method, <laughs> where everything, you are open to everything, and you gradually refine it. And that silenced his critics. And I've had two ESRC grants where I say I use the funnel method. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> and my last most brilliant Egyptian student who originally was looking at the settlement of nomads around Cairo, he disappeared and I didn't know what had happened to him. Anyway, he came, he sent me a, a Christmas card with Father Christmas on a camel and he disappeared up the Sinai Desert and he'd gone off with the Bedouin in the Sinai Desert. He, he wasn't interested just in settlement. And when he came back to Hull, he said, 
Judith, I used the funnel method. <laughs> and I said, God, all that sand, you know. But that, he was open to, he was open to what came along. So that, those were my crucial things, that the holistic open method. And what I found is that the anthropologists that I spent time with, and by the way, it wasn't a formal interview, it was a dialogue. I've been accused of uh, bias because I did only choose people I knew. I didn't, uh, when I chose strangers who were passing through Oxford, they sat bolt upright, terrified, and thought that they were being interrogated and examined, and the replies didn't come up. But what I found, it was a useful dialogue, and I would reciprocate with my own errors and blunders and experiences. So it was an exchange of experience. It wasn't an interrogation top-down. And I have um, already published one article, part of which will be reproduced in the book, um, about how anthropologists learn with their body that fieldwork is an embodied experience. And that, that is what grabbed me in anthropology, that you, you I did PPE, I um, did, I was an research assistant in Cowley, actually, my first job when I graduated. And I learnt the inadequacies of the questionnaire then. We were just supposed to walk around asking people's shopping habits in East End, East Cowley, because they were trying to build that big shopping centre. But I found even the most simple questions preordained what the answers would be. Like, um, do you buy your Sunday joint on a Saturday or a Friday? <laughs> and there were these lovely old pensioners, single uh, widowed women, who'd say, I don't have a Sunday joint. I wait till the butcher's closing on a Saturday evening and I grab the last reduced lamb chop. But there was no space for that. You know, the question was, do you buy it on a Friday or do you buy it on a Saturday? There was no openness to what the informants could tell you. So I already learnt that you don't get those questions, even with so-called rational people. But of course I did land up with the people, gypsies, who do not tolerate the question mode. Questions are asked by outsiders, they are asked by the police, they're asked by social workers, and um, they learn very, very quickly to give the answers that they expect the questioner wants to know. And I've been in touch with and interviewed Carol Silverman, who did work with um, Roma music making in the Balkans, in Bulgaria, and in New York. And she herself was also put aside and said, do not ask questions, it is very rude. And the same with Marek Kaminski, a Polish anthropologist. It was wonderful meeting them in the mid-70s here through Edwin Ardenash. And, you know, I say there were about five people in whole Europe who were anthropologists doing work on gypsies. And he also found that he was told off by asking questions. Um, what the question of what came up from my dialogues was amazing commonalities. I didn't expect 
with the different age group, different religions, ethnicities, timescales, how many fascinating commonalities there were in the replies. And um, also, well, I'm going to write an article on the interview on the interview with um, edited by James Staples at Brunel, um, that many of them switch, most of them, if not all, switch their focus when they got into the field. You have to be listening to what is there. It's no good going out with a preordained plan. I, I talk about hypothesis versus holism or the, you know, the funnel or the tunnel vision. <laughs> because if you have a, a tunnel vision, you are excluding things. And this is what I found out when, you know, I, there was no advice about how to write field books. And now we've got wonderful books, wonderful book edited by Roger Sanchez. In those days, how did I write my field notes? Um, originally, I just wrote, well, Oh, I noticed something on kinship, so I had a paragraph on that. Then I had something on travel. And I realized that I was excluding things. And it was thanks to Malcolm McLeod, another of my interviewees. He'd been an undergrad with me, and then he turned up at Cambridge in the Hunterian Museum, uh, well, first of all, the Cambridge Museum. And he said to me, I was begging him when I was having a struggle with my civil servant employer, he said, with a wicked smile, he said, you write down everything you see, you smell, you hear. Ideally, you should fill up a whole exercise book every day with this sort of wicked grin on his face. So I didn't, in the end, pre-select what was relevant. My first few weeks, I did. But then when I look back, what I later wrote was, I mentioned that somebody, a woman, was wearing a big apron. What I didn't realize at the time was you wear an apron as a gypsy woman as a barrier because your lower body is polluting and you must protect your body, your polluting body from the food. It's not to protect your clothes to keep them clean. It's, it's quite the opposite. But I just said, oh, so-and-so was wearing an you know, amazing apron. And then I discovered the significance later. And I just published an article in Behelmuth, um, which is a German um, online journal, and which I analysed my first two weeks of fieldwork when I wrote the narrative. But um, when I was invited to lecture at Smith College and the Conference of Ethnological Society in Rhode Island um, a few years ago, they were mainly postgraduates. And when I said that the uh, people I've interviewed changed their subject. They were extremely relieved. <laughs> These postgraduates thought that they had been stupid. They hid it. They had, and they said, why didn't anybody tell us before? Because they went out into the field, they couldn't find what they were looking for, or nobody wanted to talk about it, and they did something different. But they somehow felt guilty. But the great thing is that the people I interviewed, many of them, most of them, were already established with monographs and you know professors at Harvard or Nevada or Cambridge or wherever. And they didn't mind revealing their own stupidities. 
because you actually learn by your mistakes, and that was one of the questions I asked, that you don't know the rules until you break them. And I didn't realize, for example, I knew that gypsies didn't have a sink in their trailer because that's polluting, because you mix up body washing with your crockery. And I had observed that very crucially. And I had a washing up bowl and I had a washing bowl for my body. But I put my soap on the drainer. It was an ordinary non, it wasn't a gypsy, gypsy designed caravan. And I put the soap on the drainer, and the gypsy children rushed in and thought that was totally polluting. They wrapped it in layers and layers of paper and pushed it in the cupboard, because the, the soap was actually polluting because it had been used to clean the body. So it was through making mistakes that you um, make, um, that you learn what the rules are. Um, I, I also talked to some of those people who, who had the problem of no fieldwork training. Suzette Heald described an approach in the late 1960s. She said, I had no fieldwork training. It wasn't done in those days. We had fieldwork seminars where someone recommended a particular HB pencil. <laughs> and somebody else told us that notebooks six inches by three were a good idea as they'd fit into your pocket. So those were the sort of things that uh, people were given. But I also wonder, you see, that like neophytes, they, these uh, people with their first field work are sort of in this liminal stage and they're encouraged to keep quiet because self-revelation might be seen as loss of face or masculine incompetence. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll pass over the bit about the hypothesis, which I, I had to you know, go through a massive stuff. But, um, and holism versus hypothesis. And I also uh, challenged the notion that people only looked at isolates. Uh, Signa Hull, um, she said that, you know, these people, although they were technically isolated, they also went into the urban area to buy uh, goods and things like that. And Stephen Hugh Jones, I didn't interview him, but he said, our scepticism is now confirmed from even the remotest tropical Amazonian forest. The assumption of isolated communities can no longer be sustained in any part of the globe. Um, Alan Campbell did his PhD field here with Peter Riviere, and he went out to look at the YMP in Brazil. And it was tremendously exciting because people had thought they'd died out and that they were just in the neighboring um, forest or country. And he had to walk several days to find these people. You know, they suddenly, they'd been found, these isolated people. They thought they'd never met civilization through decades. And he couldn't, he could only speak minimal, because there was no vocabulary or anything, but he would speak the sign language, and he brought out his mouth organ, thinking, well, you know, music will break the barriers, I'm this weird stranger, and he played a few tunes, 
and then to his horror, these people sang, Jesus loves me. <laughs> he said he went to sleep very, very depressed that night. <laughs> He'd imagined that he found this. Um, actually, apparently they'd always been there, but they always stood behind the other um, Indians. Nobody realized that, that these were this YMP behind. Of course, he said, you know, he soon worked out that. Um, I had to rush through lots about their, about how people chose the area and the holistic study. I'll try and get on to some pictures. Um, yeah, yes, with Signa Howell, I said how she, um, there she is, um, she said that, you know, it was, she was supervised by Rodney Needham here. And um, there's a wonderful story, which I will give you, which is repeated in Fieldwork Embodied, which is that people have written about the arrival scene in anthropology. You know, Clifford and Marcus have written about that a lot, how the monographs start with the arrival scene. And, and Malinowski talks about you see the boat disappearing and you're left in this tropical island. What people haven't written about is the impact of the anthropologist on the hosts. And uh, Signa Hull was maybe a foot taller than the people that she was with. And she did say at first she cut her hair very short. And whenever she went near them, they ran away screaming. And she thought, how the hell am I going to get on with this field work? And then she followed them through, a, 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 she saw them going fishing, and she followed them at a distance. And then she went back to, because there was a sort of former hut there, I think it was left over in the 30s from a, some official. And a little boy came rushing up and left her a fish. And she'd read her Marcel most and thought, ah, oh, it's a gift, reciprocity. And um, then the next day, they, an older woman said, you must come and live with us and everything. And she was absolutely thrilled with what, what had happened. But after about six months, she said, why? How come you accepted me? And they looked very embarrassed. And after a while, they, they said, well, actually, a man saw you bathe in the river. And she would bathe very, very modestly with a sarong. But apparently the man came rushing back to the village and said, it's a woman. It's got breasts. So we knew you were all right. <laughs> so, you know, the difference between sex and gender was quite clear there. But uh, so... There's a lot about fieldwork embodied as well. Um, I'm trying to cut down so much, but to, to go through the um, differences of subject, you know, Morris, Brian Morris, wanted to look at uh, classification, but he said that he didn't have a grasp of the language properly, so he, he switched uh, to something which he could grasp easier. And again, Signa Hull changed her focus, as, as with many of them. Um, Johnny Parry, a wonderful example, he doesn't mind me citing this. He originally went off to look at 
micropolitics in northern India. And he already had a degree in anthropology, so he should know his kinship. And he said nobody wanted to talk about it. They weren't interested in micropolitics. We couldn't get anything. You couldn't get a handle on it. But he said all they wanted to talk about was women marrying into a higher caste. And he then went to Delhi University to give his first paper one year after fieldwork. And he gave a paper about women marrying into a higher caste. And at the end, the professor said, what you're talking about is hypergamy. And he said, what's that? <laughs> so he didn't even know what he was studying. <laughs> he's, he's rather like the bourgeois gentilhomme who suddenly uh, he was talking prose. Um, but he's, you know, he did a whole thesis on hypergamy. He's published a book on it. But So you, you, you don't know even what you're studying sometimes. He did say, God, it was pretty bizarre. I, mean, I should have I should have known. Um, a wonderful Japanese anthropologist, Akira Okazaki, he decided, like, you know, what, what drew you, what made you escape? He said he wanted to escape Japan, and he fled to the Maasai when he was 18 or 19. That was before he did anthropology. And he went through a rite of passage as a Maasai. And he said he, but he said at the time, he, he said, I was looking for difference. I was inspired by French literature, including the poet Rambaud, who journeyed to Northeast Africa. And I wanted to answer the question, qu'est-ce que la littérature? What is literature? especially with a non-literate people. But he said when he got there, it, it, that whole theme changed. But over the years, he desperately wanted to do a study, a, a proper PhD, and he earned money. I think he sometimes uh, transported some goods to Japanese museums. And finally, I think it was in his 40s that he then went back to do fieldwork in the Sudan um, with the Gamp people, and there he went with his children. And a wonderful question when I asked him, what way did you use participant observation? He didn't realize that there was a famine at the time. Uh, you know, and um, he said, of course I had to go to the rituals because I knew that there would be meat there for my children. Um, uh, Paul Clow of Anglo-American uh, ancestry, He's, he, I said, why did you choose Nigeria? And he said, it was pure idealism. I was living in Malta. I had a Peace Corps application. They wanted to send me to Melanesia. I didn't want to go because it looked like I was moving into an American colonial situation, American protected <coughs> territories. I thought I want something genuinely different. Out of idealism, I started looking for jobs in Africa. There was an American Jesuit priest at a Maltese school where I taught. He said, write to the vice chancellor of uh, Madhu Bello University. And that's how I got to Nigeria, another strange accident. Actually, he was registered in a sociology degree here, but he said that he gradually became an anthropologist. 
And the other thing which I'm always fascinated by is the importance of serendipity, chance. And that <coughs> you find that in science, you find it everywhere. And I, I'd never heard the word till I read Paldemir, the stranger and friend. She was also a student of Malinowski. And again, it was chance that Paul discovered the village that he eventually did his main field work with. He was, made, he was in an urban area, and a young man said, could I have a lift on your motorbike to go to my mother's village? And he went there, and he discovered it was just the perfect field site. So again, you have to grab chance when it comes upon you. And he said, I, um, it was through this accidental relationship with this young man that I found my village. The angels helped because it turned out this village was in the middle of a highly commercialized area selling a lot of food crops and cash crops to other parts of Nigeria. So like pure chance, I lucked into the village which was appropriate to research on economic underdevelopment. Um, Nancy Lindisfarne Amazingly, she went to Afghanistan in 1968, before the Russian invasion. She said, we went to Afghanistan for the first summer, which is when we discovered there were no Turkic pastoralists left. This is before the days of the internet. I spent about six months doing the ordinary homework for northern Afghanistan, looked at sources, including Russian sources, Everything suggested they'd still be there. They were there in the 19th century, but when we got there and traveled around, it was patently obvious they weren't there any longer. So we changed ethnic groups. That began the bane of my life, too many languages. But again, she seized the chance. She went with her then husband, Richard Tapper, and I, I wanted this as the cover for my book, but... Um, my publishers say photographs don't sell. <laughs> um, but again, she grabbed the chart. She said, we almost turned into ethnomusicologists, though we were completely untrained for the job. We spent a week in a small town listening to music, music long story songs about local history. The first time somebody sang one of these, we watched as half the cafe got up and left. Other people were enthusiastic, so we kept on taping. The next day, somebody came along and said, get your tape recorder, I want to sing, and he gave the opposite ethnic group's account. These story songs stood us in good stead for the rest of field work. We realized it was so safe a way to discover a lot of people, and they were pleased. We learned for the rest of the trip that a good question to ask wherever we went was, who plays good music? It took us to unexpected nooks and crannies or to cafes we wouldn't have found. And this is beautifully put. It was a thread which created a lot more spaces for us to meet people unexpectedly. We weren't directing what happened. So again, this is, she didn't say our grant didn't tell us we could do ethnomusicology. She and Richard Tapper responded to what was there. And again and again, you find this theme in, uh, in uh, different places. Sometimes people went back to their um, childhood place. 
Hélène Neveu. She said of Franco-Senegalese parentage, I've been to Dakar about eight times as a child. I found myself gliding into the place much easier. I remember the feel of the city, the sounds and smells. It helped me getting started because it didn't feel a strange a place. I could still find my way around. And she switched. She was going to look at one type of dance, and then she switched to another. And what, again, was so fascinating was that uh, at first people were very standoffish. And then they discovered that she derived with her husband and child who were visiting, her husband would visit. And then they, they introduced her to people saying, you know, she is taking us seriously. She's coming with her husband and child, i.e. she wasn't just sort of parachuting in. Um, another person I interviewed, endlessly topical, Josepa Zuleika from the Basque country, who studied Basque terrorism, studied ETA. And only just a few weeks ago, ETA has announced that they've given up the, the um, struggle. But he said, I wanted to study symbolic systems and was interested in going to Africa. Fernandez, my supervisor, pushed me going to go back to my own culture. I was taken aback, disappointed. I thought about this for a few weeks. If I'm going to study my own culture, I could take the one thing that is critical, the most traumatic, which is political violence. These guys are killers on the one hand, but also heroes and priests for their followers. This was cultural anthropology with a symbolic bent. Um, I did not want to go back. I had dreamt of anthropology as something far more exotic. And he eventually moved back to his own village. Nobody could stop him going to his own village. His own school contemporaries were now in members of ETA. He did try and study uh, in a town nearby, but they thought of him as a stranger. And there are fantastic uh, stories. And it's quite ironic that in the 1990s, when he was on a platform, American military people would say, this man should not be on the platform. This man is a terrorist, studying terrorism. And of course now, um, the CIA want to recruit anthropologists. But he was seen as a terrorist because he was studying terrorism, but obviously not involved. Um, Helena Wolfe, she her first study was of teenage children, teenagers in South London. I've got some lovely anecdotes. She went on to eventually look at ballet and dance and Irish music making. Um, but. I realise I've only got 10 minutes or so. Um, do you know, one of the problems of my having this book delayed is that it was outsourced to Arizona. Um, I had paid to have it typed up according to the house style of the publisher. So it cost me a lot of money. Um, and then it was outsourced, and the questions that I was being asked were so bizarre, like, what is Borstal? Uh, one of my students had studied for the Borstal boys who were HIV positive in Edinburgh. Um, and I said, look, you know, now you've been taken over by Bloomsbury that publishes Harry Potter, 
Um, what sort of school did these copy editors go to? What was it the school that Harry Potter went to? I don't know. But um, I discovered only by chance that one chapter was sent back to me. At first, they wouldn't give me any of the chapters to look up. They said they would just be at proof stage. And by chance, they sent me one because they said you wanted to insert a paragraph. And I found every sentence was mutilated. Every single paragraph was changed. You know, the famous George Marcus multi-sighted, they decided that it shouldn't have a hyphen. Non-places by Marc Auger shouldn't have a hyphen. And then every time Oakley used the word I, it was deleted. And every time I used the word my, that was deleted. Uh, uh, so, um, because the reader had said, would I put in more modern research? And so I had the pleasure of putting down all my PhD students. And one of them I put down, my Algerian PhD student. And they crossed out the whole phrase because it started with my. And actually, I wanted to celebrate him because I think he was probably murdered in the 90s. He was an Algerian uh, lecturer. But the, the funny thing is that I thought we got over this taboo over the word I when, when I did edit that book in the 80s, you know, Anthropology and Autobiography. But I remember the, the uh, controversy then which was people said, oh, this is narcissism, this is California speak. <laughs> and I love California. I was invited to lecture there next week, actually. And I thought, is there a conflict between Arizona and California? <laughs> Arizona doesn't use the word I, and <laughs> California do. But um, it, was, it was amazing when Helen and I argued for that book, the hostility. But... But Raymond Firth was there, and Edmund Beach was there, and they voted for our proposal, so it did, it did work in the end. I, I had to cut out so much stories, but um, I've got a few moments. And another person, the choice of location, was uh, Louise de la Gorgendière, a Canadian, French-Canadian. She said... How did she choose her village? I drove all round. I discovered this place. She said, I wanted something remote enough so I could understand the rural problem of having no water, electricity, no transportation. I drove into this village. It did have an oil palm plantation at its entrance. I was told there was nothing down the road. I found this village with a population of 150, 200 people came into the village, I was instantly greeted with a cathedral-like ceiling of bamboo trees. It struck me as such a calm place when I entered, and the people ambling out of their houses to greet me. It was almost like I'd been there before. And the wonderful irony is that after a week, the people said, this is our ancestor who has returned. She was born in the wrong body in Canada, and she was a confused ancestor, and now she's come back. And they, she said, well, you know, why? 
They said, well, you can speak our language. She said, well, I learned it in the library in Canada. <laughs> and you remembered our names. So whenever they had rituals, they would thank their ancestors for bringing her back. And that she, she was confused probably. And, uh, uh, towards the end of the book, I've looked at how people reciprocate, that anthropologists don't just come in and take their material and disappear again. She was brilliant in that she uh, did all the bureaucracy to find them, get them a proper wealth so that they didn't have Bilharzia. And then she was made a queen mother and she was presented with an Ashanti school. Uh, the role of chance again with dear Malcolm McLeod, who was taught here by Evans Pritchard, and I just end up with that funny story, and I've got lots of your stories, but I have to cut them out because they'll all be in the book. Um, Malcolm McLeod, he was the research assistant for Evans Pritchard here, and he said he was interested in witchcraft, and there was a French anthropologist visiting here, and Evans Pritchard said to this visiting French professor, who Malcolm will not inform me who it was, uh, this friend Edward, Evans Pritchard said, you know, is there anywhere where MacLeod can study witchcraft? And um, the guy said, oh, um, the Ashanti. So in those days, you had to do a two-year B-lit before you did your D-fill. They've changed that now. So he spent two years studying the Ashanti, and then he went out into the field in Ghana. And he said, of course, there was witchcraft, but he, he didn't really catch his eye. What attracted him was the wonderful material culture. Absolutely fabulous. He's, you know, then became... Uh, curator at the Museum of Mankind in London. He then became curator at the Hunter Museum. But that was what caught his eye. That's what got in, he got into. Because he went for what was there. And then he taught in university in Ghana. And he came back about three or four years later. And by chance, in the pub, visiting was this same French anthropologist. And Malcolm said, well, you know, there wasn't that much witchcraft or whatever. I, I looked at material culture, and this is where Freudian mishearings come in. The Frenchman said, I did not say the Ashanti, I said the Azandi. <laughs> <laughs> and so a mishearing. But of course, they miss her because you wouldn't believe that the world expert on a Zandi witchcraft uh, should be asking a French anthropologist where you do field work. So they, he went off to the Ashanti because he misheard the word uh, 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 in So though chance, disponibilité, I've used the French word flaneur and also Breton's term disponible, from his book L'Amour Fou, those are key elements in field work, and that you should you go with everything with you. You go with your whole history. I've looked at the specificities of people, their race, their gender, their ethnicity, their difference, their um, possibilities, and these are all things to be embraced. 
now our view doesn't have an H in it. But uh, so I, I think you have to have courage of your own possibilities rather than think that you have to do research because somebody says it's fashionable or you've got to do it because there's a hypothesis that needs testing. Thank you.